0: Father, thank you for today. Thank you for just the glorious weather and being able to gather together with so many of our church family. God, this just feels great to be together. Thank you for this gift. I pray that we would receive this gift with joy and thanksgiving and that we uh, would would worship you, continue in our worship of you through the hearing of your word. We love you and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so Colossians, just a little bit of background, and and I'm always careful with some of this kind of background stuff because I don't want you to feel like you have to know these things to understand the book of Colossians. You could read the book of Colossians and not really know anything about the author or about the audience. And still the Holy Spirit can communicate through that and, and do incredible things in you. And, and um, But it's also fun sometimes to know some of the other things that are going on. And so the background um, of this letter of, of who's writing it and to whom and, and why is, is just kind of a fascinating little picture of, of the New Testament. Um, it starts with a man named Epaphras who hears Paul proclaim the gospel in Ephesus. So you got these Greek names, so it's a little confusing to follow. But Epaphras hears the gospel preached by Paul in the city of Ephesus. And while he's there, he is discipled. He responds, he hears the gospel, he responds to the gospel. And then Paul disciples him. Paul teaches him the faith and and instructs him and then sends him out, as all of the disciples were just sent out to then go and make other disciples to fulfill the Great Commission, And so um, Epaphras does that. He gets sent out and he goes about 100 miles away to um, a a city, the city of um, Colossae, which is named after the great Jeff Colossae. That may not actually be right. I'm not, I'm sure I'll check, I'll check on that. But other than that, so Epaphras shares the gospel there at Colossae. And while he's there um, sharing the gospel, what happens when people share, when the gospel is shared is people respond to the gospel so people respond to the gospel, are, are discipled then and a church forms. And it's such a beautiful picture of how churches actually are started. Um, they're just, they're started by the proclamation of the gospel and the discipling of new believers. And so that's, that's what, that's what happens there. And so Epaphras starts this church, a church is born and the church bears much fruit But Epaphras is hearing of troubles. He sees or hears of troubles with false teachers. They're starting to come in and negatively impact this church. And so he goes and he visits Paul in prison. And he shares about this ministry. And specifically uh, about the Colossians and about the struggles and the trials that they are facing. We see that in Colossians 1, uh, verses 7 and 8. When Paul says, he talks about talking about the gospel, he says, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. So Epaphras shares this story with Paul. Paul is encouraged by the fruit, but also grieved over the threats, the, the, the false teachings that threaten the church. Meanwhile, what is also happening during this time with Paul is he's continuing to share the gospel and make disciples while he's in prison. And one of those prisoners is a young man who is a runaway slave by the name of Onesimus. And Onesimus has run away from his master and hears the gospel and responds and becomes a Christian and Paul is discipling him. And as he's discipling him, he he finds more of his story. And it turns out that Onesimus is from Colossae. And in coming to Christ, Onesimus feels convicted that he needs to be reconciled to his master. He needs to go back and return. Because his master was also a follower of Jesus from Colossae, a member of this church. And so, in sharing this with Paul, Paul encourages him to go and be reconciled. But he wants Onesimus to go with some authority and with some help. Paul loves him and wants him to see him reconciled. And so Paul writes a letter to the master whose name is Philemon. He gives it to Onesimus to bring it with him on his road back to Colossae. And with it, he, as Paul sends Onesimus with this letter to Philemon, which may sound familiar, He sends it to Philemon and he's thinking, okay, well, not only am I going to write this letter then to Philemon, but I'm going to take the opportunity now to also address the church as a whole. And so he writes the letter to the Colossians and sends it with them. And oh, by the way, knowing who, where he's sending them, he sends it with a courier named Tychicus, who's also a fellow servant in, in Christ and sends it with him and Onesimus. And he knows that to travel to Colossae to deliver these letters, they're going to go right through Ephesus. And so Paul because of his great love for the church there that he was so spent so much time with and so dearly loved he writes the Ephesians the letter to the Ephesians and he sends all three of them on their way. I don't know about you but it's a pretty productive stretch of writing for being in prison, right? And I think about in world history of all the things that we carry around with lock codes and all these different things that are under all this high security clearance, three letters of the New Testament are going with a little, small, poor traveling party, probably a thousand miles. It's unbelievable how God has protected his word and shaped it and used it for his glory. So that's all fun. That's all for free. But it gives you a little picture of What is going on and what Paul would be writing and why he's writing and to whom he's writing. And he says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from from God our Father. So notice how he introduces himself. Just really quickly, I'll, I'll point out, he's, he says that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He's setting a tone of authority here. We see him do this in, um, in the letter to the Galatians also. But often he's a little softer in his intro, but here he's clearly um, announcing himself with authority. He wants to speak against false teachings in the church, that, but here's the thing. He hasn't met this church personally. So it's very different than his tone that he takes with the Ephesians because he spent a couple of years with the Ephesians. He loved them. He did life with them. He was with them. He, was, he belonged to them. But he's never met the Colossians. But he loves them. He loves them because they are from the ministry of his son in the faith, Epaphras. So in a way, Paul would feel the responsibility of a spiritual grandfather wanting to help his son in the care for his spiritual children. Now, many of you are grandparents, and so you can understand that. You feel that weight of when you say, like, okay, I know, I know you're not my responsibility, but like, I, I feel like it's hard to not uh, meddle, it's hard to not get in there, but it's just because you love those children so much. Lauren has said, and many people have said about grandparents, that the, thing, the unique thing about grandparents is that they are the only other people who would rush into a burning building to save your child. And that's what we see from Paul here. He's a spiritual grandfather who's stepping in to help. He feels a responsibility, a deep love for the Colossians that they don't really understand from him. And so he introduces himself. And asserts his authority and why he would have the authority to be writing them. Move on. In verse three, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. So what we see already is Paul talking to them about, hey, we've never met. But I've been praying for you. We love you. We thank God all the time for you. He, he has never met them, but he knows them. And he knows them. And he addresses it here. He knows them because of their reputation. So this is really the bulk of what I want to talk about today is reputation. And reputation is a, it's a funny thing. Some of us could share stories of how we have suffered from having a bad Reputation. Sometimes deserved, sometimes not. Some of us have benefited from good reputations where you've been given the benefit of the doubt doubt, or been given um, just opportunities because of your reputation. Sometimes deserved, sometimes not. Sometimes it's just vicariously because you're attached to another group of people that then you are given that benefit of the doubt. And Paul shares here what the reputation of the church in Colossae is. And as we look at their reputation, I hope that we would consider what kind of reputation we have as individuals, but also what kind of reputation we have as a church family. To consider what is your reputation? What would people say about you in your workplace, at your school, in your home? What is our reputation? What, what would people say about us in the greater community? What would they say about Faith Church? What would they say about Christians in general? Now, this is a tricky thing to talk about. And I know because I I can already hear the objections of people saying, well, why we're not to care what other people think, like we're supposed to stand for truth and we are supposed to be Christians. So we don't worry about what other people think. And and I admit that this is a tricky line to walk, that this is very easy to fall off of the horse on one side or the other. It would certainly be easy to fall into the trap of, of worrying about what other people think about living a life and and trying to always be consumed by what your reputation is with other people and trying to work that so that you would have the right reputation. And we know from countless scriptures that that is not how we are to live our lives. Paul speaks on this multiple times. In Galatians, he says, If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. He says, to the Thessalonians in in 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our heart. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. There are countless other scriptures. Jesus talks a ton about this. We are not to live our lives To please others. We are to live our lives for God. And and I'm going to address that more later, but and also next week, but we need to make that part clear. However, reputations are also seen as important. Paul, in his instruction to Timothy on how to choose elders or how to choose leaders in the church, says, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. What's he talking about? He's talking about the reputation. He's saying if you're going to choose someone to be a leader in the church, they should have a good reputation among outsiders. Not a good reputation just with their buddies or with the people that they know the most, but with outsiders, people who are outside of the faith. And so we see right away that we we can't also live our lives in a way that says, well, what do I care what other people think about me? Well, Paul says it's important. Proverbs 22 also speaks of this. It says a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches and favor is better than silver or gold. So it gives. Is this contradictory? I mean, which is it? Are we supposed to care about our reputation or are we not? So here's what I want to try to clarify. Reputation, and there's a lot of really good definitions and this is probably not even that great of one, but for our purposes here, I'm just going to say it this way. Reputation is an assessment of who you are and what you do as evidenced by your life. Reputation as we're talking about it here is kind of an objective like this is who this person is, this is how they live. Praise comes from how that person feels about your reputation. And they don't always link together. Right? You you may have let's say that you're in a workplace that, do, that you, where you have a reputation of being honest, but you work in an industry that doesn't value honesty, that in order to be successful in that industry, you have to be dishonest. You have to fudge the numbers or fudge the truth a little bit. Well, a person who has the reputation of being honest in that environment will have that reputation, but they won't have the praises of men. If you were living for the praises of men, you would justify slight white lies and dishonesties. But if you were to live for God, then your reputation would remain honest. So really, it's about what you are pursuing. A godly reputation is formed when you are pursuing Christ. An ungodly reputation is formed when you are pursuing the praises of men. And therein lies the difference. If you pursue Christ... You don't worry about your reputation. If you pursue what other people think about you, then you end on the path to destruction. And so the church, if the church at Colossae was trying to impress Paul or trying to impress Epaphras or other people, then this would be a very different letter. But they're not. The reputation is formed in their pursuit of Christ, and it's noticed by Paul. So let's consider the reputation of the Colossians. Bears noting the first obvious thing about this is that they have one. They're not unknown. It's not unsure. Paul doesn't say, you know, hey, I know Epaphras started that church, but I don't really know anything about you. So here's just some general encouragement. And that's one of the things that I was considering when I thought about this and thinking about reputations is one, we should have one. We should be out in the community enough to even have a reputation. One, I was reading a book one time when I, we when I were planting our church in, in Denver and he asked the question of if your church ceased to exist, would the community notice? And that speaks to reputation. How would the community feel? Would the community, if, if Faith Church ceased to exist, we just closed our doors and called it a day and ended, how would the community at large feel about that? Would they be relieved? Would they, would they be grieved and saddened? Or would they say, what, what was that church? That's just something to consider. I don't have a lot else with that, but just something to consider that having a reputation is, means that there's been some kind of activity, some kind of interaction That we are called to. But I want to spend most of the time then on what that reputation is. So he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. One of the reasons I love teaching through the Bible is the outlines are just already done for me. So, We see in this their faith in Christ Jesus, the love that they have for all the saints, because of the hope they have in heaven. So let's take each of those. He says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. So this is really important. So I want us to consider as we think through these, I want you to ask the question is this, would this be my reputation? Is this our church's reputation? The phrase Paul uses here, faith in Jesus, is not merely like an objective kind of, I believe he exists, or I believe in the tenets of the gospel, or I have the right, direct, the, the right doctrine. When he says faith in Jesus, he's talking about a demonstrated, obedient, submitted faith. He's talking about an all-consuming faith in Christ Jesus. He uses that phrase, in Christ Jesus, to talk about unity with Christ. He's talked to them as faithful brothers in Christ. We see Paul using this phrase, that this in Christ, meaning that I, Paul would say, I I dwell in Christ and Christ in me, that that Christ is so a part of me and I a part of Christ that you can't see the difference. You don't know any separation. I don't have a part of me that lives like this over here and a part of me that lives like this, that my faithful side over here. They would see this. They would see this, this identity. He says in Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. So it's an identity thing. And I have to ask myself that question when I'm I'm evaluating that. The people around me, would they know that? Would they they know? Are they surprised if they find out that I'm a pastor? Are they surprised by that? I have that easy in because eventually someone's going to ask me what I do and I can tell them that. And so that's like, that's just the obvious way. But for, for you, that's not maybe the case. And so the question is, would they, would they be surprised? Or is your identity so intertwined with Jesus that it would be obvious to anybody when they find out that you're a Christian? What would they say your number one identity is? Would they say that it's the Packers or a political party or your family? Or would they say, man, I, what I know about that person is that person loves Jesus person knows Jesus. I don't know if I know Jesus. I don't know what the deal is, but I I know that. So that's one question to ask. I think one of the signs of that kind of faith, of so being in Christ and Christ being in me, is simply peace. Right now, in our culture, I think what speaks more than almost anything, other than love, which we'll get to, but what speaks more is peace. Those who are Peacekeepers, those who are peacemakers, those who who want to see reconciliation and want to see want to see peace and function in a peaceful way. There's so much fear in our culture, so much anxiety. All, as Lauren would say, all the feels, all the emotions that are going on, and it's heightened, and people are are constantly vilifying one another and just saying, if we just didn't have these people, we'd be fine. Or if everyone just thought like me, then we would be fine. And we are in this place that we're in and we all feel it. And so in the midst of that, for someone who is just so lived in by Christ and, and so lives in Christ, would have peace about them. That you would have faith in your day-to-day life in the one who holds all things together? Do you live your life in that way or do you live your life day-to-day as if you are in control or you should be in control and you panic when you're not? Look, I get it. I feel that a lot and I have to remind myself constantly, like, do you believe, really believe in the one who holds all things together? If so, have peace. Have peace. So they have faith in Christ. He goes on to say that the way in which their faith is most demonstrated is through love. So this is the second thing he notices about their reputation. The love that you have for all the saints. This is an important thing, love for all the saints. Here's one area where some background is kind of helpful. Colossae was a very diverse city. People from different ethnicities, different religious beliefs, different political beliefs, different economic statuses. It's a very diverse city. And what's interesting is that in this letter to the Colossians, Paul doesn't deal with any of the things that you would think would be challenges or problems in a city like that. He does in other churches, certainly in to the letter to the Galatians. There's also hints of it to the Ephesians, but not to the Colossians. And he answers why here. One of the things he says about your reputation is your love for all the saints. It is known. It is renowned. No division. No partiality. Their love for all is known. Like I said, Paul addresses this in so many ways in other churches. And he doesn't hear the church. in Colossae had a reputation that all of these people from very diverse backgrounds came together. And in their transformation and sanctification, they loved one another. They loved one another. One family in Christ. Can we say the same about ourselves? Specifically as these elections draw near, would people say about our church, I don't know all that's going on there, but I know that that's a place where people who have differing political views love each other. I I genuinely don't know how they do it. I don't know how they stand to be in the same room with each other, but they love each other. And I know they love each other because I see it. They, they serve one another. They give for one another. They love one another. We are to be known by that. When I think back to all the people I've seen come to faith in Christ, it has never been through arguing. It has never been through trying to prove them wrong. And look, I'm an arguer. I, I like to debate. I'm confrontational by nature in all the times where I've shared the gospel and all the people I've seen come to Christ, it has never come through arguing with them. It has always come through the testimony of radical supernatural love. That's what softens hearts. So if we want to see revival, then we have to be leading the way in that kind of love. And of course, that's how God transforms hearts. It's what he has always done. That's what he did when he sent Jesus Jesus didn't come down and and become flesh and walk among us so that he could deliver the world's greatest, greatest apologetic speech known to man. He ministered to hearts. He didn't go from town to town arguing with people until people realized, oh, wow, you're way smarter than me. I guess I should believe you. No, he expresses his power and glory through love, through healing the sick, caring for the poor, And by the way, this is often where people interject and say, well, yeah, Jesus loved. He was loving. He was compassionate. Definitely all those things. But he also spoke truth. And we can't lose that. And I just have to ask, why do we think those things are in competition with each other? Why do we treat those things as if they are separate? Truth and love are not two separate things that are unrelated. They are united together. Jesus was always truthful and he was always loving so there is never a time where jesus has to choose between truth and love and neither do we if we are following christ neither do we let that be our reputation let people say look they've got some wacky views They actually believe, like sometimes I'll say that when I'm sharing with somebody and talking to somebody and they say, they kind of have a generic faith and they want to talk about some viewpoints or whatever. I was like, look, I'm one of those weird people that believes that God created the heavens and the earth and he created you and formed you before you even knew you existed. And that he wanted to be in relationship with us and created us for a relationship with him. And yet we broke it because we wanted to be gods. And I believe that he sent his son to become flesh and walk among us and to live the life I couldn't live and die the death that I deserved. And I believe that he revealed all of this through his inspired word that is trustworthy. That he is protected and that he has given to us as a gift. And that all those who repent and come to faith in Jesus are not only forgiven and redeemed, but adopted and given an inheritance for all eternity. Now if you say that and just acknowledge, I get that that sounds really weird. That is truth and it is full of love. And so let that be what they say about us. I don't agree with them. I don't know. They, they've got strange views on things, but they love people. And so Paul then says, why, why are these things true about your church? Why is this your reputation? He says, the third thing, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. So, Paul sees in them a faith and an identity in Christ. He sees a a radical love for others, and he knows the root of it because he's seen it so many times before. Because their hope is in heaven, not in some ethereal place that we just kind of imagine in our minds, but the place that Jesus said he was going to prepare for us. That we believe that we are adopted as sons and daughters. And as Peter says in 1 Peter 1, that we are given, that we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's why. That's why they're so strengthened in that. They believed in the gospel and they have this hope in heaven, so they know this is not their home. They know we are, we are citizens of a kingdom first and foremost, so we aren't shaken by the world around us. That's why we have the peace that comes with faith in Christ, because we're not shaken by any of those things, because we know that this world is temporary. We know that this is not our true home. And because of the hope we have in heaven, people should see in us this steadfast and persever- perseverance, because we know that this time is temporary that our suffering is temporary, that our grief is temporary. That's why we're told don't mourn and, and grieve as those who have no hope. We have a hope. And so, yes, we grieve. Yes, we're saddened by the things that go on, but we are not destroyed by it. We are not despaired. We don't get desperate because we know the God who holds all things together and we trust him. So people should see that and it should be our reputation that we hold those things loosely not living as if this life is all there is, not living and dying on each promotion or each stock market move or each football game or each election. And it is this hope that empowers us to love everyone, including our enemies, this hope that serves our faith in Jesus. We are children born to a living hope, and that hope, as Paul says in Romans 5, it does not put us to shame. He says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who's been given to us. We believe him when he says he's going to prepare a place for us. We believe him when he says he has the words of eternal life. We are faithful in the moment and hopeful in the future. And we should be. Look, I've said many times, and I believe this to be true, and I'm not alone in this, that I believe that externally things are going to get much worse for the church on a worldly level. I think persecution will increase. I believe that will happen here. I think our rights will go away. But I'm not afraid of it. Because I believe that things will get much better on a spiritual level. I believe that more people will come to know Jesus Christ. I believe that people will be overcome with incredible joy and peace and hope. I believe that we will see a revival of love within the church. I believe that the worse it gets on the outside, the better it will get on the inside. And I believe that one day Jesus is coming back and he will make all things right. He will bring a new heaven and a new earth, and we will reign with him for all eternity, ever increasing in faith, hope, and love and fellowship with our Lord. And that kind of hope radically changes how I live today radically. It can't help but do it, and it has to be noticed. Sometimes in big ways, as we handle things like tragedy and cancer, and sometimes in small ways, when we're kind to the server, when you're waiting for an hour for your food. It's in all of the things that our demonstration of our hope in Jesus is on display. It develops a reputation, and this is the reputation the Colossians had one of faith, hope, and love. Does that sound familiar? If you've grown up in the church at all? You might, or if you've been to any wedding in the last hundred years, First Corinthians thirteen, everyone's favorite chapter, definition of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. All of the, all of the things in there that I just remember those first two. That whole like keeping right no keeping records of wrongs and all that. I kind of fall asleep at that part. But, um, he gives this great definition of love. But he says Paul says in First Corinthians thirteen, verse thirteen. So now faith, hope. And love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Church, this is what Paul measures. This is what he praises: Faith, hope, and love. It's not what he always praised, by the way. It's not what he always valued. Before Christ, he valued righteous living and morality. Before Christ, he valued zeal that led to aggressively defending his faith to the point of persecution and murder. Because being right was more important than loving his enemy. But when he met Christ, that all changed. And now what he values is faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. He doesn't praise them for their doctrinal soundness, though he is going to address that. He doesn't talk about their prophecies or their political influence or power. He talks about faith, hope, and love. Is that your reputation? Would those three words, make the list. Ask around. Ask a five-year-old if you have one lying around somewhere. They're very honest. I just got a hand raised. That was so great. Yeah. They tend to be very honest and very direct and very observant. Is that what you value? Look, church, there's so many voices competing for your attention right now. I just read an article that was grieving over the fact but they said the average church-going Christian, so the people who go to church every week, the average church-going Christian, gets one to two hours of input from spiritual leaders, and forty hours from news media outlets. That's like, oh. I just think about that, like one to two hours. That's not just from a sermon, that's just from also reading the Bible and everything. They're basically saying, I'm going here for a couple of hours, and then I'm going to this news media outlet for the rest of it. If you don't think that will affect your heart, you're foolish. It will, it does. There's so many voices competing for your attention. Are you listening to the right ones? Are you listening for faith, hope, and love? And by the way, that's not just in the news media, it's in the Christian world too. We also have a movement of people who are so bent on just being right that that's the thing. We have to make sure everybody is right. And so they call themselves doctrinal watchdogs, but they are wolves because there is no love in them. There is no faith. There's no holding things loosely. There's no hope in Christ. Look, we all know that there's a way that a child can answer their parent that is factually correct, but wrong in all the worst possible ways. Right? So be careful of leaders, especially in the Christian world, who use truth as an excuse to be unloving. They are wolves, they are imposters. And it will be shown at some point. They may be intelligent, they may be articulate. They may be really good at arguing. They may be good at at creating propaganda and, and, and videos and all that stuff. They may be theologically accurate and correct. They may be compelling and winsome. But if you would not describe them as loving, if they do not grieve as they are delivering hard things, if they do not weep over the lost, then move on. Be careful of them. Be careful of those whose hope is not demonstrably in Jesus Christ. Whose hope is in legislation or morality. Be, beware of those who see themselves as watchdogs and gatekeepers. Listen to the Holy Spirit through the word of God and brothers and sisters whose lives of faith, hope, and love are on display and pursue Jesus and let your reputation be developed from that. Faith in Christ, love for all, hope in heaven. That's the reputation. And by the way, he says, which in verse six, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So that's the punctuation, that's the exclamation point. This faith, hope, and love, it is ever increasing. They haven't arrived. None of us have arrived. Are we increasing in these things? People should not only be able to say those things about you, but they should see it increasing. Our stories of what God is doing in our lives should be constantly changing and constantly evolving and advancing and increasing. If you're still sharing stories about something that happened 30 years ago, and that's still your most relevant story you have about who God is and what he has done in your world in this world and in your life, pursue him more. He has way more stories for you. A lot of you remember Bobby Robbins, who we sent out as a missionary, a hockey missionary. He played professional hockey and then, and then has gone off and he's serving God in, in Minnesota with FCA hockey. And I used to say that what I loved about meeting with, with Bobby was that whatever we talked about last time, he's got a whole new batch of stories. A whole new batch of stories about sharing the gospel, about loving people. And I love that. We should be people like that. None of us are in the finishing stages The person who's been in heaven the least amount of time is far and away more spiritually mature than our most wise and mature person here on earth. We will never arrive. In fact, we'll never arrive when we're in heaven. We will be ever increasing even there. That's the beauty of all this. Would people say that about us? Would they say that we rest on a reputation or they say that we are actively and they're seeing this love increasing Which, by the way, to this, I just want to finish with this. If you say like, well, yeah, I do all that, but I still, people think poorly of me. People hate me. My family hates me because I love Jesus. My, my, my coworkers hate the fact that, that I care about these things and I annoy them because of all this stuff. So what do I do then? Well, remember, that's the difference. The difference between reputation and praise is reputation is just an assessment of who you are and what your life looks like. Praise comes from how they feel about that. And you can't control that. Peter addresses this in 1 Peter 3 to a group of Christians who are loving Jesus and pursuing him, but they have they are thought poorly of. And he says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear them, of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that, listen, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So let them say those things. about. I hate that guy. He's always so honest great. Let it be said. If people have a poor opinion about it, let it, about you, let it be because of your reputation of radical love and service for others. That may annoy them. It may foil their plans. It may make them uncomfortable. Let that be the reason they think poorly of you. And you're in good company because that's what Jesus's bad rep- reputation was all about. And if you think that won't happen, look at Jesus and think of your own life. Do you know how many times I've been called foolish for wanting to see refugees cared for? Do you know how many times I've been called closed-minded for wanting to see the unborn protected? Or naive for giving somebody the benefit of the doubt? If you want to have the reputation that comes from Christ, there will be people who think poorly of you. It will happen. And not just people out there, but people in here. And when we are that way, then we are following Peter and we are following our Lord Jesus. But as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. Be well thought of by outsiders. If they're going to slander you, let it be for your radical faith in Christ. Your radical and selfless love for all people and your hope that is kept for you in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we desperately need you and god this morning as we are outside here and just surrounded by your creation we are reminded of how big you are how good you are how you hold all things together which we will be talking about in the coming weeks god you are you are infinite god i pray that you would root us in faith in christ jesus that you would forgive us for when our identity is other things and that you would root us. And we know we are being sanctified and formed from one degree of glory to another. And it can seem so slow, but God, I pray we would even be encouraged for those of us who are feeling like, but why is it so slow that even that would be an encouragement that you are at work in us and that we would be known by our radical love and our radical hope in you. Because you are our only hope. We love because you first loved us. And we have been given the gift of faith by you. Amen.